if you want to give a brief description, because I'm going to tell you something. When it comes to molecular biology, uh, ribosome. <laughs> That's yeah. what I know, right? I mean, so, I mean, after that, whatever happens in that little box, I don't have any idea. I mean, so I remember it at one point. Uh, and transcriptases and stuff like that, but that's your bailiwick. So if you can bring it down to the family practitioner level, that's awesome too. I'm Todd Fredericks, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and this is Rotations. And so without further ado, we have Nisarg Bakshi, OMS2, to start us off. Yep. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Rotations. Uh, my name is Nisarg Bakshi, second-year medical student at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And we're joined today by uh, Dr. Douglas Axe, a molecular biologist and the head of the Biologic Institute. So thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Axe. Great to be here. And we also have on a panel uh, Anna Kerr, who is soon to be a professor, but currently a, pro a postdoc here at OU. So thank you for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. Of course. So Dr. Axe, let's, uh, let's jump right in. Tell us a little bit about your background. I actually uh, <clears throat> entered molecular biology through engineering, which is a little bit unusual. Studied chemical engineering as an undergraduate <clears throat> at UC Berkeley. Went on to graduate school and was not particularly interested in the life sciences, but um, <clears throat> until I saw a connection between the life sciences and engineering. And that was in molecular genetics class where the professor was talking about these elegant genetic regulatory mechanisms that turn genes on and off. And when I was looking at that, I was thinking back to um, process systems control in chemical engineering. And I thought, here's a process being controlled, and it's being controlled at the molecular level. And I fell in love with this idea that uh, at, at the molecular level, at, the, at root, you see a lot of engineering in biology. And so I fell in love with biology at that point, and in particular at the... Uh, Molecular level, molecular biology and genetics. Oh, that is that is really interesting to see that connection there. Uh, and what sort of work does the Biologic Institute do? We bring together scientists from a number of disciplines, in, including uh, computing, uh, molecular biology, systematics, um, to do biology, uh, including uh, philosophy of biology or theoretical biology from a design perspective. So what we're trying to do is provide a home for people to do the work that they're not supposed to do. They may be affiliated with other institutions, with universities in Europe or elsewhere in the world. Um, and in most of those places, you're not really given free reign to think about things that are outside the orthodox, and we provide an institutional home for people to do that. Yeah, and that's really why we wanted to have you on, is kind of talk about battling that orthodoxy, right? Uh, so what sort of work is that? You know, you say you have people on to do the work they're not supposed to. What sorts of work is that? Well, Rick Sternberg is a theoretical biologist who was uh, effectively removed from his position at the Smithsonian Institution. Um, he was the editor-in-chief of their technical journal, Proceedings Journal. Um, he, as the editor-in-chief allowed a paper that was authored by Stephen Meyer to be published. This was back in 2004 or so in the journal. And when people found out that someone with a Discovery Institute affiliation had published a paper in their technical journal, uh, the doo-doo hit the fan and Rick got in trouble. And he wasn't actually formally fired, but things were made very difficult for him such that he had to basically leave that, either change his tune and not be interested in the things that he was interested in or find another place to do his work. A similar story for me 
which I recount in my book. Uh, yeah, but mention your book before you go further. <laughs> yeah. Doug, mention your book. Uh, it, put it, put it in there. It's okay if you have the plug. We'll put it in the show notes so people can read it. I've ah, got he's got a copy. copy. He's got right it right here. there. <laughs> <laughs> Undeniable: How biology confirms our intuition that life is designed. And what is your book about? If you could uh, talk a little bit about what, what's actually the content. Well, uh, I've spent so after that sort of epiphany as a graduate, young graduate student at Caltech. Um, I ended up having doors open for me to pursue a career in testing molecular Darwinism, spent 25 years or so along with others doing that, uh, have come to the conclusion very um, solidly that uh, molecular Darwinism does not work, that the Darwinian mechanism does not explain the origin of new genes and proteins in, in particular. And I got an opportunity a couple of years ago to work on a book uh, with HarperCollins and I thought I could, what I could do is take this technical work and uh, bring it down to street level and describe it in simple terms. And parts of the book do that. But what I didn't want to do is perpetuate the idea that at, at rock bottom, this is a technical argument that, that most people cannot understand unless it's distilled for them. Mm -hmm. I have felt very strongly that at rock bottom, this is not a technical argument. It's a common sense argument down here where everyone can grab grapple with it and understand it. And so the book is an attempt to show people that the intuition that we all have, that life is designed, and this is acknowledged, broadly acknowledged, that that intuition is actually, uh, doesn't come out of thin, thin air, it comes out of uh, everyday observation and common sense reasoning. And I put it on a footing where I show that actually this particular intuition is correct and you can be very confident of that. Not all intuitions are, but this one, this one is solid. So that's the idea of the book. Sure. And, and a lot of your work actually has to do with enzymes, right? Like we were talking before. Yes. And so can right. you uh, maybe give a little bit of an explanation as to what is so special about an enzyme? Okay. Well, if you take the biochemistry course, you'll be told that enzymes are proteins or complexes of proteins and that they're catalysts. Um, and if you've studied chemistry before biochemistry, you'll know what a catalyst is. It's something that accelerates a reaction that naturally happens. So, and there are a lot of these reactions. If you, uh, um, a candle that's not lit is paraffin in the presence of air, which is oxygen. And naturally that paraffin will want to oxidize and produce CO2 and water. But an unlit candle will sit there for centuries and not do that. So why does it not do that? Well, there's, an, there's a barrier for these reactions to start occurring and lighting a match and, and putting it to the candle, you start this chain reaction where the heat from some paraffin burning enables the next paraffin molecules to burn. Catalysts are things that you can add to um, a system and enable these barriers to be overcome so that a reaction that wants to happen but is having trouble getting going can get going. And enzymes are catalysts, but they, they, they are far more sophisticated than simple catalysts. Vinegar can be a catalyst for certain reactions, or lemon juice, those can be catalysts for certain reactions. Uh, enzymes um, are not simply providing a chemical environment, they're providing a sophisticated geometry to put reacting molecules into position to react and providing a controlled local environment for them to react and then releasing the products and grabbing the next uh, round of reactants. So they do catalyze uh, catalysis, but they do it in a, in a highly sophisticated, sophisticated way that enables 
rate enhancement to be uh, staggering, far more than simple catalysts. And, and how big are these molecules? I mean, are we talking about larger molecules, tiny? On the molecular scale, they're, they're massive, but on the ordinary everyday scale, they're submicroscopic. So it depends on your perspective. Um, all proteins are made by linking amino acids into long chains. Uh, a typical protein chain will be maybe 200 or 300 amino acids linked together. Each of those has a molecular weight of 100, so you end up with a large molecule, much too large to build with your little stick and ball and stick uh, model set. Um, and yet it's a tiny thing. It's a, it's a molecule. Yeah, and, and, you know, when we're talking about proteins and enzymes and catalysts, like for me as a medical student, I know I've encountered a lot of this material uh, in high school and undergrad in medical school. So I guess my question is, you know, what exactly is your research focusing on? Because it, at least from an educational perspective, it feels like we already know so much about this. We know a lot about how enzymes work and about how proteins work. One of the things, one of the things that I'm looking at that I'm interested in that we don't know so much about is how protein chains fold. So these things are produced. A gene contains the genetic instructions for ordering, for sequencing amino acids into one of these chains. And the ribosome, which we talked about earlier, <laughs> is, the, is the molecular machine that reads an RNA, a transcript, and reads the instructions and links together these amino acids into a long chain. Mm -hmm. But these functional things, to have the shape to, to work like a machine or a tool, you can't just have a wobbly, spaghetti-like, long strand of linked amino acids. These things have to fold. They come together and they fold into a... Uh, stable three-dimensional structure. That's called the protein folding process. And the, the protein folding problem is how, how these things know what shape they should acquire based upon the sequence of amino acids. And we believe it's true that the right sequence is what encodes the shape, but we still don't understand how to decode that. In other words, given a new sequence, mm -hmm. an amino acid sequence, say a natural one, if it doesn't match an existing known one that we've already solved the structure for, there is no, uh, there's no solid way for us to infer what the folded structure will be. That's, that's one aspect of the folding problem. Now, Doug, are you familiar with the Folding at Home project? Is that David Baker? In, I think so, where he's like recruiting all the Xboxes on the planet to try to add additional yeah, computing. Yeah, I think that's at University of Washington. David Baker, I think, is the guy who started that. Yeah, and, and I, I think it emphasizes the point. I think if I understand the project correctly, was he was like getting PlayStations and Xboxes, anything with a chip in it that could compute, and you could basically sign up for time where you could make this sort of network supercomputer because the mathematics surrounding the modeling of these things is just unbelievably complicated, if I understand it correctly. And so that's why they needed to harness all this additional computing power to look at just how these proteins fold to make them functional machines. Is that correct? It's basically a way to get free cloud computing. Is yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's ingenious, really, when you think about it. Although he'd never get my kid's Xbox because it's constantly in use. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, I thought it was rather interesting. And I didn't realize that, that it really is a very complex thing to study these things. I don't think, actually, that the computational power is the limiting factor here. I think that in, in some respects that's helpful, but I, I think actually it comes down to our fundamental ability to describe the math that, that, that would, would explain how these things fold. I think if you're off in any of your assumptions, you can do your calculation and you can have everyone volunteering their computer time overnight, 
but the calculation is only as good as the math that went into it. And I frankly don't think, I think these things are so subtle and they depend on such subtle math that, um, well, such subtle physics <laughs> that the math to describe it accurately is very subtle. And I, and I doubt whether given all the computers, um, the sort of math that we're using today would actually solve this problem. Sure. And then what sorts of resistance have you encountered uh, with the work that you do? Well, in my book, uh, in chapter four, I talk about um, losing my position, actually, at the Medical Research Council Center in Cambridge over the controversy over design. Um, so that's the most profound aspect of resistance. Now, interestingly, I've, I have faced virtually no face-to-face -face confrontation where someone's shouting at me or saying, you idiot, why are you thinking this way? Um, but there's been a lot of resistance that's behind the scenes. And if you're familiar with uh, scientific publication, you know that a lot happens in peer review and it's blind peer review. So people are reading my, my manuscript or my papers. Uh, I don't know who they are and, and uh, they will never reveal their identity to me, but they'll write something about something that I wrote and recommend that it be accepted or rejected. That ends up being, although it's a, it, it, I think it's a necessary part of scientific publishing, it's also something that can be um, used in a wrong way, that if people don't like a certain way of thinking, they can use peer review to prevent it from getting out and published. And so that sort of resistance behind the scenes, behind the back resistance is what I, what I encounter most frequently. Sure. And, and could you maybe then just define dogma? You know, what are we talking about when you say dogma or the orthodoxy within the scientific community? A dogmatic statement is a statement that is not to be challenged. You, you are to accept this and you are to subscribe to this and you're not, not to challenge it. And really, uh, when you think about what the essence of science is, science has no place for dogma. Science is all about proposing things in such a way that they can be tested, going out and testing them and allowing others to test them and formulating ideas that appear to be correct. But we recognize that um, science is this iterative process where we hope that we're closer to being correct today than we were 50 years ago. And we hope that 50 years from now we'll be closer than we are today. But we never want to be so arrogant as to claim we've done it, we know it all. And so this is true, don't bother questioning it. Dogma really works against science because science, science has to hold everything loosely, recognize that claims are only as good as the reasoning and the evidence that backs them up, and therefore they could be refuted. And once you hold something dogmatically, you're saying, I, I'm not giving you permission to challenge this. Whereas science really needs to hold all its claims loosely and give everyone free permission to challenge them because that's how science progresses. Do you know of any examples of dogma that were later proven to be uh, false? There must be hundreds of these in the history of science. One that I'm familiar with that I think is a good example is um, junk DNA. You may, you may remember that term that was used around the time of uh, the early days of genomics in the early 2000s when genome sequences were being published and when money was being raised, public money, to sequence the human genome. Well, one of the things that we heard in the dialogue about genomes and about the human genome is that the vast majority of genomes uh, were called junk. They were called junk because they do not appear to encode protein sequences. They don't appear to be genes. They appear to be elements that are 
outside of genes or little interrupting elements within genes. Well, when you call it junk DNA, how many graduate students do you think are going to roll up their sleeves and say, hey, I want to study junk DNA? Of course, you, you've, you've, you've created a culture in which nobody wants to look at it because you've called it junk. Well, it turns out people did look at, have looked at um, these large, the majority sections of these geno genomes, genomic DNA, and it looks like it's not junk. The ENCODE project has shown that the vast majority of our genome, of complex genomes, is transcribed. So the DNA is being read and converted into RNA, and that RNA is being involved in, in complex processes where, um, very complex processes where it's no longer very clear what a gene is or how, how life goes from genetic instructions to protein sequences. The best way to get people to study that is to not dogmatically say this is doing nothing, this is you know leftover from evolution, but to say, hey, we don't know what this is doing, so roll up your sleeves and help us find out what this is doing. Yeah, and actually, I remember when uh, we were taught that it was junk DNA, so that's that's an interesting point to bring up. It was not that long ago. And yeah, you know, that, recent. Has, that has changed. That's an important yeah. point, because when I find people who, who throw out um, criticisms about the suggestion that maybe there's more to all this than we understand, and you say, well, there's these issues of dogma and science. Well, those are ancient. We've, we've surpassed that. Junk DNA is within the last decade. So, oh, I mean, yeah. these are recent developments that have been disproven, and yet there were people who were getting, you know, who are writing papers and just making these assertions boldly as if, if they're solemn truth. And that's a little concerning. And I, I want to go back real quick, sorry, before you go on, about was it the science, Doug, of the of the fellow I forget his name now, but it was at Smithsonian. Was his science bad? Was his was his it was his uh, methodology bad or his math bad in terms of what he was doing professionally, or is it just because he had the temerity to suggest maybe there's something different than what conventional science wants to acknowledge? Well, this was Rick Sternberg. He, yep. he had positions both at the National Institutes of Health and at the Smithsonian. Um, it wasn't even his science. His science is outstanding. It wasn't his science that people were objecting to. It was his open-mindedness. So it's even worse than that. He was doing outstanding science, recognized as a very, very brilliant uh, scientist, but he had the open-mindedness to allow a paper that was suggesting design and challenging the Darwinian orthodoxy to be published in the technical journal uh, with the Smithsonian's name on it. And, it was, and was the paper they allowed to be published bad science, or was it a theoretical approach in saying, this is a possibility. Based upon what we know, we might want to consider this as an op opportunity theoretically. It was a very careful piece of work by Stephen Meyer, who's a colleague of mine. Um, it's been a long time since I read it. I recall it being a very careful um, explanation of what goes wrong when you assume that... Um, that information can be had for nothing. Um, the reasons that it appears that information requires um, a source, uh, a mind-like source, and a, and a cautious appeal to intelligent design is a better explanation for resolving that problem. Mm. Just, you know, we're, we're going to scratch the surface here, and we'll talk more about it in our, in our next episode, but can you just define intelligent design for the listeners that aren't familiar with it? Mm. Yeah, it is often called a theory, and I actually don't think it is a theory. So I would say it is a hypothesis, and it is a hypothesis that's that's connected to a basic principle. The basic principle is you can look at things and infer whether they were designed. Um, 
There are some things that you look at and you scratch your head and say, I don't know whether that was designed or not, but certain things you can look at, like machines, like a watch, and you know that somebody designed it and made it by the way it functions. Functional coherence is what I call it in the book. So intelligent design is that idea that, that we can look at things and by their properties infer that they were designed, coupled to the more controversial, that's really not controversial. Yeah, I, I don't think any, anyone would disagree with that. <laughs> the more controversial claim is that when you look at biology, you see that it was designed. So that that principle applies to biology, to life. When we look at the things of life, they satisfy the conditions for inferring that they were designed and therefore someone, some intelligence, I say it's God, but an intelligent designer had to have had to have made these things. So that's the idea. Now, I, I call it a hypothesis because it's really a claim. I think mm -hmm. it's a claim that's true, but most biologists don't consider that to be um, a replacement for the Darwinian theory. And, and I agree because Darwinism gives a comprehensive explanation of where everything came from and how it came to be. And it's a totally wrong explanation, but at least it's comprehensive. Whereas intelligent design is not giving that sort of thing. It is simply saying, however these things came about, they were designed. And so I agree with biologists that they are gonna, they're gonna want something much more than simply that claim in order to know how that claim impinges on their work. And so I think there's a theory that's still waiting to be framed that's based on intelligent design, but intelligent design for the moment is a hypothesis that's very, very strong. So, you know, if we're talking about um, just testing a hypothesis with the scientific method, which is, you know, the standard, uh, isn't it then, like, how do you test for something like that when you're talking about this undefinable, this all-powerful thing that's going to be designing all of life? How do you test something that's, by its very nature, undefinable? Um, well, you can you can test negatively. So the claim, <clears throat> the claim of naturalists and the claim of Darwinism, is that you don't need intelligence to get some things that look very intricate and design-like. And every you know, Richard Dawkins acknowledges that life looks like it was designed. He claims that that is uh, a misleading impression that in fact it wasn't intelligently designed. So if someone were to show an alternative to intelligence for producing the things that look like brilliant design, then that would be a refutation of the claim. But I, I think it's, it's now become so um, connected to fundamental proofs, like the no free lunch theorem, there's all kinds of theoretical reasons why we can actually be confident that no such demonstration will ever happen. It's actually a proven idea that certain things do not come from accidental causes. They have to come from being conceived and then being implemented as a conception. And so if you accept that some of these formal proofs actually apply to intelligent design, then the reason it's not going to be refuted is not that it's not testable, but that it's true. <laughs> That's why it's not gonna be refuted. But then don't we fall into the same trap of making assumptions, right? Like we, we were talking before with Darwinism that you have to make these certain assumptions uh, for it to hold true. Aren't we doing the same thing with uh, intelligent design? Like you just said, we have to assume these things for it, you know, to, to prove uh, its existence. Uh, well, I'm not sure when I used assume, but I'm not talking about assumptions. You, you can, we don't, we don't have to assume anything. And in my book, I don't assume anything. I, I invite the atheist, the agnostic, and the theist to join me on a journey in the book and say, let's just look at this and see what makes sense. 
And I start with the intuition that when we look at living things, we think that they were designed, and here's why we think they were designed. Now, that may, it may be a correct thought or it may be an incorrect thought. So let's unpack that. That's how I walk through the book. When you unpack it, you see that, in fact, um, the things that have these properties, and I call it functional coherence, a hierarchy where there's a top-level function that's performed only by having an arrangement of parts, layer above layer above layer, all the way down to elementary constituents. And all these parts are arranged to produce sub-functions within sub-functions to produce that top-level function. When you see things like that, it turns out that you can show probabilistically that they can't happen by accident. Someone had to know how to make that in order for it to be made. So there's really no assumptions needed to do it. You can show this rigorously. Um, so I didn't mean to I didn't mean to imply that you have to assume something to get there. You do you can get there through rigorous reasoning. Um, the problem that we're finding is that so many people don't want to get there. <laughs> so you can do the rigorous reasoning, and if people don't want to accept the conclusion, then they'll find some way to try to wriggle out of it. Sure. Um, and this is this is like I said, a, a conversation we can definitely dive deeper into in the second segment of this episode. Uh, but before we finish off this first segment, I wanted to give Anna, our uh, resident person off the street, uh, a chance to ask any questions or any comments that she may have. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm very interested in this idea of peer review and what we take as knowledge in the scientific community that our journals maybe give certain voices a louder voice or certain opinions. And so for you as someone submitting a paper or reviewing a paper, how do you kind of rationalize that or approach how we consider knowledge in the scientific community in terms of what's published in journals? And one of the things I try to do in the book is give non-scientists a more realistic view of what science is. Science, the way it actually works out, is a very human enterprise. And duh, it's got to be a human enterprise because it's done by humans. But I think for some reason, well, I think I understand the reasons, but I think we've been sort of brainwashed into thinking that the scientific method somehow sanitizes science of all these human uh, flaws so people have become, you know, very skeptical of politics. They become skeptical of big business. They become skeptical even of medicine, I think, to a degree. That, and the, the skepticism is based upon our understanding that humans, for their own selfish reasons, bring their own agendas into these fields and they mess things up, okay? And so no one will believe a politician just because a politician says something, right? But they think that somehow science is different in that scientists are all um, objective thinkers. They don't bring their baggage to their discipline. They're, they're all truth seekers. And so when a scientist says something, then it has to be true. Now, I think in the la I think in recent decades, people have become they've woken up to the fact that that can't actually be true. But I think we're at a stage where we still think that somehow if you get a thousand of these people together, even though each one of them is flawed as an individual, somehow the truth will come out of that magically and the scientific method will guarantee that. Well, if you think a little more deeply and skeptically about the whole process, uh, science is effectively organized in a club-like fashion. It, in, peer review is club-like in that the people who are on the inside get to decide who else comes on the inside. People who are insiders get to review the work of people who are trying to become insiders and they're the ones who admit you to the club, okay? And the inner circle is maybe the uh, National Academy of Sciences. So the US National Academy of Sciences, the Royal Society in Great Britain, these are clubs. 
Who decides who gets into them? The members decide who gets into them. So it's a very self-selecting culture that gets formed around these elite bodies of scientists. And because of that, um, they can take exception to it and even be offended by ideas that are really legitimate and ought to be allowed into the mix. But if they don't like it because it challenges the way they think, they have the power to exclude new ideas, to exclude people with the new ideas, okay? So in that way, it becomes, peer review can become a tool uh, of censorship. And that's an abuse of peer review. And I think everyone would admit that's an abuse of peer review, but human nature being what it is, it is used to censor. And yet, if you ask me what's better than peer review, I don't have, I don't know what's better than peer review. Some journals have tried an open version of peer review where um, it's not blind, where you submit a paper, and Biology Direct is an example of this. You submit a paper, a manuscript. If there are three people who review it, their names will be on the reviews and the reviews will be published with manuscript. There's no, I have no simple solution for this other than um, a plea for realism and people to recognize, particularly non-scientists, that this is not a perfect system, that bad ideas will become entrenched and it becomes very hard to dislodge them. And really the best way around this is diverse versions of diverse communities within the community. Thank yeah, and you. that's yeah. a great question. Did you have any other questions? No, for, that was uh, wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, well, uh, thank you, Dr. Axe. And we'll continue our conversation on in the second segment of this episode. Um, so thank you for joining us for this segment. And uh, this has been an episode of Rotations. We'll be back next week. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medical and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. Rotations is a product of the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine and the Scripps College of Communications. Rotations is hosted by Nasarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and video edited by Brian Plow. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators and you must cite rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com 